Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Script Chat. It's the podcast that connects you to your favorite authors through insightful conversations about their latest and greatest works. We take a deep dive into the unique insights from their writings, and then discuss how our listeners can apply those insights to their own lives. I'm David Pemberton, and today we'll be listening to a previously recorded script chat with author Gretchen Rubin. Rubin is, of course, the author of several New York Times bestsellers, including The Happiness Project, Happier at Home, Better Than Before, and her latest book, The Four Tendencies. If you haven't had a chance to enjoy the book yet, well, you're really missing out. It's a groundbreaking analysis of personality type, focused primarily on how we respond to expectations. And I can tell you, it's extremely interesting. But don't worry, you don't need to have read the book to enjoy today's episode. Though, I wouldn't be surprised if you picked up the four tendencies after listening to Ruben discuss the ins and outs of being an upholder, questioner, obliger, or rebel. As an added bonus, this script chat was moderated by author Chip Heath, who, along with his brother Dan, has written several popular books, including Decisive, Made to Stick, and most recently, The Power of Moments. So, without further ado, here's Gretchen Rubin and Chip Heath. Enjoy. Well, this is, this is an honor to be here with Gretchen, because she has done more to increase happiness in the world than <laughs> almost anyone else, anyone else I know. So, this is a book, this is a book about personalities. But you don't call it personalities. You call it tendencies. Yeah. Why? Well, I think personality suggests that it's kind of an explanation of your whole nature. Mm. And the thing about the four tendencies is it's just one very narrow slice. So there's upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. And we could have 50 obligers lined up here. And they would look very different from each other about how ambitious they were, how considerate of other people's feelings they were, how intellectual they were, how curious they were, how adventurous they were, how extroverted or introverted they were, how controlling they were. They look very different. But they would be the same about how they responded to expectations. So it's not painting a picture of your whole self. It's just one very narrow aspect. But it turns out it's a very significant aspect. It's yeah. Slice. Well, I, I like that humility of saying, you know, this is one slice. It's an important slice, but it's not the whole yeah. thing. Because I think everybody tends to overclaim for their personality, yes. you know, typology. Uh, so you went through the four really quick. Um, uh-huh. Slow down a little bit. Okay. And in particular, there's an underlying two-dimensional framework. And it's whether I'm in touch with my own desires, expectations, commitments, versus I'm in touch with the expectations and commitments that other people have. And so it's not just four, it's kind of a combination of each of those elements. Right, uh, so. right exactly right. So, so it's how you respond to expectations, outer expectations, like a, re- uh, a work deadline or request from a friend, and inner expectations, like your own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, your own desire to write a novel in your free time. So upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what others expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do it if they think it makes sense. So they make everything an inner expectation, because if it meets their inner standard, they will meet it. If it fails their inner standard, they will resist. And they tend to hate anything arbitrary, inefficient, unjustified. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my first insight into this when I talked to a friend of mine who said, I don't understand it. When I was in high school, I was on the track team, and I never missed track practice. Why can't I go running now? Well, it's when she had a team and a coach waiting for her. She had no trouble showing up, but when she was trying to go running on her own, she struggled. 
And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. If you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't even want to tell themselves what to do. Rebel is the smallest tendency. Uh, it's the most conspicuous tendency, but it's not very many people. And upholder is only slightly larger. The biggest tendency is obliger. And then right behind them is questioner. And because the biggest are obliger and questioner, that has a lot of implications if you're trying to design something for a big population, or you're designing a program, or you're managing a large team. Most of the people that you deal with are going to be obligers or questioners. Let's go there for a second. Should we be hiring obligers? Oh, a lot of people think that you have to be an obliger to do their job. Many yeah. people have said that to me. Um, in fact, I gave a talk one time, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, I only want to hire obligers. Can you tell me how to screen for that in hiring? But I don't think he meant it in a nice way. So I refused to tell him. Um, no, I mean, I think, you, I think all of them have strengths and weaknesses. And depending, and, and you know, this is one aspect. So depending on all the other aspects of, of your nature, you might be better or ill-suited to a job. But I do think that there are, situ there, there are work environments and also professions where it might allow you to tap into the strengths of your tendency or also aspects of your tendency might make it feel like a bad fit. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on upholders for a second because you, you said that's your category. Yeah. And I find upholders hard to empathize with because they're so, <laughs> they so perfect. Um, ah. they, they, they meet social expectations. They meet their own expectations. They never, they never hesitate to fulfill the New Year's resolution. You yeah. Know. yeah. Am I, am I seeing they, this right? There's many strengths. All these have strengths and weaknesses. There's many strengths to being an upholder, but they're often perceived to be rigid mm -hmm. because it's hard for them to be flexible. It's hard for them to move off their plan. They can seem judgmental because mm -hmm. things come easily to them that other people struggle with. They're not good in situations that are fluid or where it's, not, it's ambiguous what the expectations are or where things are changing. So they can have a tightening, which is when like, the rules get tighter and tighter and they can't let go. So there's strengths to it, but there's also weaknesses. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about you talking about your personal history is you, you embarked on a very rigorous graduate education in law. Yes. And you were even a Supreme Court clerk. I mean, this is not shabby, it's achievement in law. Sandra Day O'Connor? Yes. That's, that's amazing. But at a certain point, you decided, I'm going to be a book writer. Yes. Yeah. How, how did that work for an upholder? Well, I think it was, it was an example of, of, of how it can be an advantage to be an upholder because, because the thing for all, the, all of the tendencies is what related to inner expectations is in order for inner expectations to be recognized and hopefully met, you have to recognize what they are. You have to articulate them. And so it's very important to articulate inner expectations and then use your tendency to figure out how to meet those inner expectations. So I think when I was going through law school, I, didn't have the, I hadn't articulated the expectation that I wanted to be a writer. I didn't really see a place for myself in the writing world. You know, I went to law school for all the wrong reasons that everybody does. It's a great education. I'm good at research and writing. I can always change my mind later. It'll keep my options open. But then at a certain point, I had the idea, like, I would like to be a writer. And then I just did what I, I, I literally went to the bookstore and bought a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal and followed the instructions. And to me, that didn't seem that hard. I'm like, well, this is what, uh, this is what one does. You might want to put that on your list. I, the no, writers. I don't even remember the title. <laughs> like, you'd think I would have kept the book, but I don't even, I don't even have, I don't, I don't even know what the book was called. It was just some, some you know, throwaway guide. And, um, but many people said to me, but how did you get yourself to do it? Like, to write the sample chapter and to write the query letter and to contact all those agents and everything. And I was like, well... I mean, that's what, that's what I needed to do in order to do it. Like, what's the big deal? But now I understand 
that as an upholder, once I had that inner expectation, I just executed on it. Whereas if I'd been a questioner or obliger or rebel, that process might have looked very different and, and maybe not as smooth. Okay. And, and so one of the phrases that I thought was interesting is once you understood your inner voice, yeah. you, you executed well, but it yeah. took you a while to hear your yes. inner voice. Yes. And, and is that generally true of upholders, that the, the first priority is the external no. focus? Okay. No, I think it just depends on your circumstances and, like, and how clearly it is. I mean, for me, it was tied into a lot of things. Like now, and uh, you guys would know better than anybody, sort of creative nonfiction is something that's very recognized. And it's a whole category, and people talk about it all the time. But when I was in college, it was like you were either like a novelist, a playwright, or a poet, or you were a journalist, or you were an academic writer. And I was I didn't want to do any of those things. So I didn't I kind of couldn't imagine myself being a writer because and I and I know this is not true because I went back and looked at the publishing timeline of this book and it can't be true. But in my mind, I saw the book Mark Kurlansky's Cod, the the a biography of the world through the eyes of a fish, and this like blew my mind and made me realize that I could write the kind of I could write a book that was the kind of book that I wanted to write. But that can't be true. That's how I remember it. But I, I think that was part of what, for me, the inter expectation hadn't been articulated. Is I just like I didn't even think that such a thing existed, so I had to catch up with the reality of the world. So let me ask a kind of meta question about your writing style, because one of the things I love about your books is you are so you are so out there trying these things, and you're reporting from the front lines, and, and <laughs> it's 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 fascinating. Is being an upholder a key because you're you're able to bond with other people because you're thinking about the external focus and also your internal focus at the same time? You know, I hadn't thought about that. That could be true. I, I, I had not thought about it that way. I think in many ways being an upholder, it, it made me more different. And that shed a light on, on things. Because, for instance, after the Happiness Project came out, people kept saying to me, well, how did you get yourself to do those things? And I was like, well, it was sort of the same thing as the writing. I was like, well, I knew these things would make me happier, so I decided to try them and do them. And then I just, they did make me happier, so I did it. And people would say, yeah, but how did you get yourself to do it? And I really didn't understand that question. I was like, I don't understand. What's the big deal, right? This is a thing. This is an upholder thing to say. Can't you just do it? Like, what's the big deal? Like, what's the, everybody's problem? Very upholder. But I could see that people were different from me. Or like all the people who were complaining about you know, the arbitrariness of something like the January 1st date. I was like, I don't know, the, the arbitrariness of it never bothered me. And so I think being, it was almost to an advantage to being a, like a rare tendency because I could see how people were different. Or I remember a journalist called me one time and she was like, well, why? She was writing an article about happiness. Why is it that busy parents like us can't take time for ourselves? And I said to her, I'm a busy parent, but I have no trouble taking time for myself. And she said, neither do I. I was like, then why are you asking that question? <laughs> because it's, because that's an obliger question. And so, it, and, there, and obliger is a big group. So a lot of people think, well, everybody's an obliger, but they're not. And so I think if I had been an obliger, I would have thought, well, this is the universal experience of mm -hmm. busy parents. And instead I was like, no, I don't feel that way. So something else is going on. So take us through the process by which you discovered there were these tendencies. So what was the first hint that well, there the, was something going on? The first hint was this lunch with a friend who told me about the track team. I just was, I mean, I'd heard so many stories like this before, but this one hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, it's the same person, it's the same behavior. At one time she could do it, now she struggles. And it's, you know, it's this habit of running. And I'd heard so many people say the same thing. And then there was the day when I was looking down at my messy to-do list, and all of a sudden I realized 
the power of this idea of expectations, of meeting expectations. And so it, it, it practically melted my brain. It was definitely the most intellectually challenging thing because I could sense all these patterns in the world. I couldn't tell if they fit together. I couldn't tell if they were even related to each other. But I felt like there was something there and I was just constantly cycling through trying to fit them into um, some kind of relationship to each other. So did you start out with six types and simplify it down to four? Or how, how did well, no, work? because it's inner and outer. So there's yeah. four. You know, people are like, why are there four? I'm like, because it's inner, inner, outer, inner, outer, outer, inner. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it, it's just, it has sort of the elegance of nature. It, it can be four and it can be no more than four because those are the four combinations. Well, see, I get that as a final product, but yeah. you, you started with an obliger. Yeah. I mean, there could have been six different variables that were. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, but, but I, it was the expectations. It was okay. the outer and inner expectations. So I was like, okay, well, if you, meet, if you meet outer and inner expectations, well, that is me. That's, and this is one of the things that's always puzzled me. When you talk about conscientiousness, like this is a thing that they'll talk about in people's personalities, people being conscientious. Well, to me as an upholder, people's conscientiousness is something that's very puzzling to me. Because I'll see people and I'm like, I don't get it because I'm highly conscientious all the time. But then I see people who seem like half conscientious, but they're not like mediocre conscientious. Sometimes they're very conscientious and sometimes they're not conscientious at all. And that made no sense to me. Mm. Like what's going on with that? Like it would seem just like bizarre. And then there were people who just dismissed the whole thing altogether. So that was something I was trying to figure out too. Mm. Like what explains this pattern of when people are meeting expectations or not? So that's when it all started. I, it all started to make sense, like seeing how these patterns would fit. So you you were not married to another upholder? No. What's your spouse? It happens very rarely in my observation. Okay. What is your spouse? He's a questioner, yes. And here's an example of his, like how understanding the four tendencies has helped me in my marriage. So he's a questioner, and um, I call, I, we had to fill out this boring bureaucratic form. And as a good upholder, I was like, well, why don't I just go ahead and do this? I'll cross it off the list. Like, if I wait for him to do it, who knows when he'll think it's the right time, so I'm just going to do it and get it done. So one of the questions was, what's, your work, what's his work address? And I didn't know his work address. So I called him up and he said, what's your work address? And what did he say to me? Why? Why do you want to know? And in, in an unenlightened state, I would have said, what's your problem? Why is everything a conversation? Can't you just answer me? What does this mean about our marriage? Um, but now I know he just wants to know why. He, why should I? And what I should have done is said to him, I'm filling out that boring bureaucratic form. What's your work address? And then he would have told me. And so I've learned a lot from being married to a questioner and how to manage it so that I get the strengths of being married. There's many advantages to being married to a questioner. And then I can kind of figure out ways to deal with the parts that annoy me. So, and you're a questioner. Have we established that? We, I yes. raised my hand. You raised your hand. I raised my hand. Okay. So this, this feels natural to you. Uh, it feels natural. And, and you nailed me when when you said that one of the ways you know you're a questioner is if you question the framework, Good. you know, and Good. whether you need four Excellent. categories or six or yes. five or, you know, whatever. Questioners hate arbitrary rules. Yes. Why? Because they don't make any sense. It's like, why, why, why five garments to a dressing room? Why five? Why not six? Why not eight? Why do we have a rule at all? There's nobody in the store right now. And that now. doesn't bother you? No. I, who can be bothered to take the time to question it? <laughs> <laughs> It just seems wrong, you know. Right, I know, I know. This is the thing that's interesting about questioners, because questioners are like, why isn't everybody a questioner? This, they're like, yeah. why are people such lemmings? It really bothers them. But yeah, but yeah. Now, what about rebels? Because rebels have some of those tendencies, too. Rebels can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. 
And so they would just be like, well, I don't, it, it, they don't, they I'm don't just going to do whatever to I question want. It. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm just like, I've got seven garments. I'm just going to take them in there because I'm just going to do what I want. That's not to say that they're automatic rule breakers because some, some rebels have like deep reverence for, for the law, for the rules. They can be highly idealistic, very ambitious. So they can do those things when they want to do it, when they choose to do it. But they're not just going to do it because that's what the sign says. Okay. Rebel is the smallest tendency and it's the largest chapter in the book because it's the, hard, it's the most different from the other three tendencies and it's the hardest to wrap your mind around, I think, if you're not in that tendency. They have a very specific way of seeing the world and it's very easy to trigger their spirit of resistance without realizing that you're doing it. In fact, this is a funny example of this. So, so if you listen to the podcast Happier, I do it with my sister Elizabeth, we decided to do a meetup. Uh, in Marina del Rey. So we did this meetup, all these people come, and the weird thing was there was only one rebel there. And I said to her, why is there only one rebel here? And she goes, oh, I know why. I said, why? She said, because you said it was from 5 to 7 p.m. <laughs> Rebels don't like to be locked into a particular time. That's I know that. And I realized in the messaging we should have said, Elizabeth and I are going to be hanging out at the Cheesecake Factory, of all places, in Marina del Rey. Come by if you want. Like, we'll probably be there like five to seven. Come if it works for you and you're in the neighborhood. But this idea, like, you have to RSVP to something that's happening from five to seven on Sunday. It's just like rebels don't want to be locked in like that. So, so you get a lot easy. of abiders to the meeting because they were there for five to seven. Yes, yes. But rebels are there. And, and they're the, good to RSVP. And the questioners were, were RSVPing, saying, could we make it another time? Yeah, yeah that's right. Like, okay. why, is it, why, is it, why is it in a different neighborhood? Yeah. Now, you, know, you said rebels are the most unusual category, but in Hollywood, mm -hmm. they're pervasive. You know, it's like rebels make good movies. Well, they're very, they're often, their stories are often very dramatic and colorful. So it's a, it's a, it's a fun story to tell. Okay. Yeah. And so even though if we, looked at, if we looked at the media, we'd see a lot of these things, they're rarer in life? Yes. Okay. Yeah. One thing that you do often see, uh, oh, so a very striking pattern among obligers is obliger rebellion, which is when obligers meet, meet, meet expectations, then suddenly they snap, and they're like, and this I will not do. And sometimes it's small and symbolic, but sometimes it's really big and destructive and very dramatic. And it, there are many, many, many depictions of Obliger Rebellion in books and movies and TV. Like, who's seen It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, George Bailey, he is a textbook Obliger. That is like a movie about being an Obliger. The strengths and weaknesses and uh, the rewards and the, and the lack of rewards for being an Obliger. And his Obliger Rebellion comes when he's going to throw himself off the bridge, right? He's had enough. Expectations are too high. He feels neglected, exploited, taken advantage of, not heard. And he's ready to go, you know, like the most extreme Obliger Rebellion that you can have. And it comes up a lot because it's really dramatic and interesting. It's out of character in a way, but it's also within character because this is something that Obligers often do. So it's perfect drama because it's surprising but also consistent. Mm -hmm. So suppose I know about these things now. Am I better at dealing with my kids or my spouse or my coworkers because of this? Or is it, these are fixed characteristics and so I can't do much about it? I think it's much easier to deal with the other people, whether at home or at work or in life, um, if you know the tendencies. Because I think for all of us, it's hard not to assume that everybody sees the world the way that we do. It's just hard to think that people could have a different perspective. And the fact is like with the tendencies, people do respond very differently to situations. And when you're aware of it, then you can adjust for it. So for instance, I had an experience recently. As an upholder, I would send, like I don't, I don't have, I'm not a boss, but I work with a lot of people. I have like a lot of work relationships. And 
I would routinely send emails over the weekend. And it wasn't like I decided that this was okay. It literally never crossed my mind not to do it. Because I'm like, well, it's on my mind. I want to get it off my plate. I'll send you an email. It's up to you what you want to do. If you want to answer your emails over the weekend, you can do that if you want to manage your workflow that way. If you don't want to, if you want to wait till Monday, whatever. Like, I didn't even think about anything. I, it never crossed my mind. And through kind of a circuitous route, I found out that some obligers were really, really taking it amiss that I was peppering them with work emails over the weekend. Mm. So I learned to use delay delivery in Outlook because I don't want to annoy them. I don't want them to feel like they have to do what I say because I'm like, it's up to you. As an upholder, I'm like, it's totally up to you. Do, it, do whatever works for you. But an obliger is like, oh, if I get that work email, I feel like I have to answer it. Wow. And so, or they have to really struggle with their mind like, well, if I say yes to you, then I'm saying no to my family because I promised them I was going to stay off email, and it's this whole thing. I'm like, no, I'll just wait and send it on Monday morning. Problem solved for everybody. And I was able to do that because I understood how other people see the world differently for me. So I have to accommodate them so that we can have an environment where we all thrive. So for the obligers in the crowd, the reason you weren't putting a demand on them is because you would have checked your internal preferences and just said, it's the weekend. I don't yeah. want to respond to it yeah. now. I'm just like, yeah, I won't do it right now if I want, because it's the weekend. Yeah. Right. And for the questioners, how would the questioners have responded to your email on the weekend? They would have done it or not, like whatever, because they also meet, readily meet inner expectations, so they would have done whatever worked for them. And in fact, I work with some questioners, I, I work with a questioner who was sort of privy to this whole thing, and she emailed me separately, and she's like, I just want you to know that it's fine for you to send me work emails over the weekend. I will just ignore them if I want. And I'm like, that's fine, good, okay, well then I won't have to worry about this delay delivery thing with you, because you'll just manage it on your own end. But when you see how you might be accidentally causing friction, or, or another thing, um, so oblige, to meet inner expectations, obligers need outer accountability. Uh, they must have outer accountability to meet inner expectations. That's probably the most important like, clue from the book. But a lot of times, obligers will ask people to give them accountability, and people will re resist, partly because it's a lot of work to be an accountability partner, but also because like, people think, well, I don't want to babysit you. I don't want to check on you. I don't want to nag you. You just, if it's important to you, you'll do you'll it. You'll do it, yeah. No. If people ask for accountability, you should always give it to them. Or if you don't want to give it to them yourself, you should help them figure out a way to get accountability. A lot of times people need accountability who don't even know to ask for it. If they ask for it, they need it. Do not say to them, you do not need it. So somebody, I, I gave a talk and a woman came up to me and she said, oh, I realized I, uh, I was making a mistake with my son. He wants to take the GRE, you know, the graduate uh, admissions test. And he kept saying to me, Mom, I need to take a, t a, s a class to study for the GRE. And she kept saying, no, you don't. If it's important to you to do well in the GRE, you can just buy a book and study on your own. And she said, but now I realize he's an obliger. He probably should take the class. Yes. So you're actually getting in this guy's way. You're telling him he doesn't need to do something that he's telling you he does need. And so part of it is understanding people just need to have things set up differently. And... Um, it's fine. Hmm. It's not that hard once you realize how to, how to push the right buttons. And so talk to me about rebels, because they seem the hardest, hardest to deal with. Do, do we need rebels in organizations? I have spoken to organizations that had no rebels. But rebels are great at thinking outside the box. Hmm. They're great at think of, of uh, disregarding convention. They often like to flout convention. Um, they can do anything they want to do. They're not good at doing repetitive tasks or like doing the same thing in the same way every day. I mean, to me as an upholder, 
the idea of being something like a Benedictine monk is like so appealing. I would love to do the same thing in the same way every day, like fantasy land, but not for a rebel. So some organizations, like let's say in sales, where it's like, hey man, whatever you need to do to get that sale, you do it. That's great for a rebel. They're like, I'm going a different place, I'm meeting all these different people, I'm, I'm butting up against the rules, that's great. You know, in some places it would be harder to manage the rebel spirit. Um, but I think, uh, 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 interestingly, a lot of rebels are attracted to areas of high regulation, like the police, the clergy, the military, large corporations with lots and lots of rules. Really? And it surprised me, and what the rebels say is that some rebels, if there's nothing, if there are no rules to push against, they kind of stall out. They, they sort of, they don't have the, they kind of need the edge of the swimming pool to push off against, so they need to be in a place that has a lot of rules so that they can rebel against those rules. That's, and, and that's really interesting. And, the, and several people in the military have said, well, actually in the military, there's sort of an understanding of this and that you can still succeed even if you are a rule breaker and that it's, it's sort of part of that. So, yeah, it's, there's a lot of paradox in the rebel tendency. Yeah, I was actually talking to somebody at one point, and he was savvy enough to articulate your rebel personality because he, uh, said, he said, the optimal job for me is a rule-bound situation where the company's not doing very well because they're so enmeshed in their rules because I'm able to go into a situation and ignore the rules. Yes. And, and that helps turn around the company that needs to do something different. So that's very Because you can just disregard them and blow them up, yeah. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick moment and remind you that The Four Tendencies is available on Scribd. If you're not yet a Scribd member, then you can enjoy the book by visiting Scribd.com, where you can read free for 30 days just by signing up. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. You work with your sister. Yes. And, and you work with your brother. I work with my brother. Yes. And people are always asking us, you know, how do you, how do you work with your sibling? Yeah. And, and, and the implication is it would be hard for me to work with my sibling. <laughs> and and what, part of our answer is that we're 10 years apart. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was off to college when he was an 8-year-old kid, and we really didn't have a lot of the competition that I think siblings do when they're maybe closer in age. But your sister is an obliger, mm -hmm. to Talk about the dynamic of working with your sibling. Well, it's interesting because my sister's five years younger, and I've heard it said that like when there's more than five years apart, it's almost like you're in your own zone. So maybe there is something to that. I love working with my sister because uh, I mean, she's one, and I've written about this since the Happiness Project. And, and all my books, I was like, it's my my relationship with my sister is so important. I'm always trying to do things in my life, and then creating this podcast together. Then it was this massive project that we work on all the time together. Like we just did this meetup. We, went to, we go to conferences together. We have all these, like, all this whole new world that we were entering together. Um, we have matching T-shirts that she made us. Um, it, it's a great sisterly adventure. And, and I don't know about for you, but for me, like, there's just like a level of trust and frankness that's possible with a sibling. Like, I could just say to her, I, just whatever needed, I could just be very, very honest. And I didn't have to worry about was something, was she going to get her nose out of joint or, you know, was she going to perceive something to be fair? Because I'm like, if she doesn't, she'll just tell me. You still got to show up to mom and dad's for holidays. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. And, um, and it's funny because when we did the, when we started the podcast, somebody said to me, well, you're going to have to show a lot of conflict because conflict is what is interesting. And I was like, well, that's kind of a problem because I probably have less conflict with Elizabeth than literally anybody else in my entire life. But we don't have conflict, but we do have differences. And like, 
I'm an upholder, not many people are upholders. She's an obliger, lots of people are obligers. This is one of the things, not the only thing we talk about on the podcast by any means, but it's one of the things we talk about. And it's interesting because there's difference, and so people come at it from different ways. And I'm sure when you write your books, or you were saying just even in coming up with the topics of your books, there's an interchange and a strength that comes from two people adding, you know, talking it through and kind of trying to arrive at the you know, most interesting ideas. So what's the biggest aha, as you've been t- talking to people about tendencies, ah. what's the biggest aha that people get out of having this framework? Absolutely. The biggest aha is that they exist and that like, this, this explains a lot. Like, people are constantly coming up to me like, at last, I, you know, my father's been dead for 10 years, but now I, at last I understand the roots of our conflict. Or you know, now I understand why I'm having trouble with my boss. Or um, now I'm a doctor and now I understand like, what, what I'm seeing among my patients. But the single kind of biggest takeaway is definitely this idea that if an obliger is struggling to meet inner expectations, what they need is an architecture of outer expectation. Because obligers are often looking to other places, like they're trying to articulate their inner expectations, they're trying to learn to put themselves first, um, they try to do things that aren't really very helpful. And so understanding that outer expectation is the key, I think is the thing that for most people is like the thing they run home and put to use fastest. All right. Yeah. This, looks like, this looks like a young crowd. Any dating advice? For, oh, dating for... advice. Um, well, there is a flash evaluation on my website if you want to not ask somebody to take the quiz on a blind date, but like maybe you would like to get a sense of their tendency right away. Um, there's a couple questions that you can ask that will give you a good, a good sense. But the thing is, it's, this is, this is one of many things of a personality. So it, it doesn't make or break. And in the, in the book, I have a whole chapter that's like when, the, when different tendencies pair up, what are the likely strengths and, and conflicts that can arise? One very striking pattern is if there is a rebel, almost always they're partnered with an obliger. And that's in romance and also in work, like if it's a founding team. Rebels are almost always with obligers. So that's useful to know if you're a rebel or an obliger. So should we turn it over to questions? They get a gold star if you ask the first question because nobody likes to ask the first question. Questioners oh, would like to this. ask the first question. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is George. So I was just curious, have you come across any characteristics or attributes or behaviors uh, that don't seem to fall within the framework that you're kind of proposing? And if there are, have there been any that have been deceptively ev- like ev- evading the framework and they can be easy to misinterpret in one bucket or another? Do you have something in mind? No, just oh, just in general. Well, this only deals with expectations. So everything sort of fits within the, the inner expectation and the outer expectation. Uh, I mean, it, you, people fit into that bucket because it's so narrow. So I haven't really se- I mean, and so one of the things, one of the challenges when I was developing the framework was to constantly say, but what about this? What about that? And like, at first, I didn't understand about obliger rebellion. And I was very puzzled by these episodes. Um, that I was seeing in the life of obligers, so it took me a while to understand how that fit into the obliger patterns, or like rebels and their and their attra- how some rebels were attracted to the military and the clergy. I don't know if any of you here know Thomas Merton, who was very famous a while back, like Seven Story Mountain, Trappist monk, absolute rebel, um, and so I was trying to make sense of that. And so basically, I think I've gotten to the point where everything that I think should fit in does fit in and is accounted for. Uh, but again, it's because it's very narrow. 
Hi, Gretchen. Uh, I'm an obliger. Okay. Um, and you mention in the book that um, while you're going to have a main tendency, you can also kind of lean towards another yes. one. Um, and I was curious, you say that the tendencies tend to be pretty set for life, but can you switch between which one you lean towards? I've definitely had moments when I've been more rebellious, and that might have been question or, or um, obliger Oblige. rebellion, but um, I also feel like I've had moments when I've been better at upholding. Right. Um, yeah, if you open up the, if you have the book in front of you, open up like the very, is that called a front piece? Yeah, you guys would know. What, is, what do you call the opening front thing? Matter. Front Or no, just the very first page, that yellow thing. What's that, is that the front piece? I don't know, that first yellow page. The yellow is a little bit out of control, I gotta say. But um, uh, you see how they're overlapping. And yeah, you're exactly right. Each tendency overlaps with two tendencies. So you're an obliger, and obligers overlap with upholders and that they both readily meet outer expectations, and obligers off also overlap with rebels and that they both resist inner expectations. So some obligers tip more to upholder, some tip more to rebel. So I do think you stay within the core tendency, but, the, but, but, but could you sort of shift back and forth? Um, I think probably not much. I think probably you are where you are, um, and it might be that in different circumstances it's coming out differently depending on what the outer accountability is and whether you are slipping into obliger rebellion. For instance, one place where obliger rebellion often shows up is in uh, health-related things, eating habits, exercise habits, doing physical therapy, taking medication, a lot of times obliger rebellion will be turned to the self. Everybody's asking me to do everything, but they can't make me quit sugar, you know? Um, or I just, I just can't go to the gym. With everything that's going on in my life, I, I'm not, I can't go to the gym, is a form of obliger rebellion. So you might be experiencing that, but I, I think people are pretty much, they stay more or less in that same zone. Congratulations on having a front piece. That's, that's that, really cool. That's, yeah. I like that. Uh, if that's the word, which I don't know, I, but I have to look that up. So hi, my name's Tom. I'm an obliger, and my wife is an obliger. Mm. So how can we be productive? Because I can assume that we're both obligers by the state of our house. Okay. <laughs> so what you do for that? Invite people over. Have a dinner party. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so some of the happiest couples that I know are obliger, obliger. Um, but they are not good sources of outer, outer accountability for each other. And this is true for obligers generally. And it's kind of romantic if you think about it because it's like, well, you're so much like me. You're like inner accountability. So I'm going to ignore you just like I would ignore myself, right, because you're so close to me. So obliger, obligers often need an outer form of accountability, not, not trying to create it in each other. Like my sister is an obliger married to an obliger, and they're always trying to eat healthier, but it's like, oh, should we go get frozen yogurt? Sure, let's do it. You know, like they're always kind of, they don't, they're not good at holding each other to things. So you want to go outside for that. So yeah, if, you're, if you want to keep the house clean, you could have a party or you could uh, arrange for a professional organizer to come over, or you could think about the fact that you want, it's really important to you to, uh, you have all these used books that you're not reading and you want to donate them so that other people can read them, and so it's uh, that kind of outer accountability. Or you could hire somebody to come do it, throw money at the problem. If you can do that, that's always a good solution, <laughs> especially if you're a rebel. Rebels are always like, oh yeah, I just, I pay for somebody to do that, that, that grunt work. But so, so I think it's the thing to think about that. How do we create outer accountability for the things that we want ourselves to do? Hi, Gretchen. Hey. Um, I'm interested in, uh, you said that the rebels are the smallest group and thus they occupy the largest part of the book because yeah. you had trouble explaining them, you had trouble. Yeah. Well, they're just the most different. So they the, took the most, the most yeah. But uh, as, a, well, as a questioner with probably rebellious tendencies, All right. I find <laughs> the idea of upholding to be completely alien. Oh, right. And yes. as such, I, I guess what I'm interested in is uh, how do you take that section of the book as self-expression? Did you find that because it's the second least common 
group you had to write the second most about it or did you feel like all you had to do was like dump your own sort of right. Uh, position onto the paper? Like, yeah. how, how do you express that? Well, that's interesting. Um, well, one of the things about being upholders is that, in a way, they cause the least conflict with others. Because they're sort of, I mean, in a way, one of the ways that they cause conflict is by being very self-contained. So they don't need as much explanation because people aren't trying to manage it as much. So in that sense, they sort of don't need as much talk. And yeah, it was funny. It was funny just in terms of the writing of the book because, in a way, the upholder is the least interesting tendency, I would say. But I put it first because it was sort of like I had to put myself. I had to get my my own stance clear, because I think it kind of matters. Well, and better than before because I do. I did talk about um, this framework in better than before at, in brief, and a lot of rebels were like, "You didn't talk enough about rebels," like because that's because you're an upholder. And I was like, "Yeah, you're sort of right." Um, and uh, but I but I think I I think I did I think I did flesh it out enough to to get the main points out. My favorite part of the whole thing was coming up with the mottos for all the tendencies and, and just generating. And I had the most mottos for upholders because that was the closest to my heart. So I'm curious, uh, why is there no uh, category in the center? And then if there was one, what would you call it? Can I guess what your tendency is? Sure. Questioner. So yeah, I was I was kind of struggling <laughs> with that. Honestly, honestly. My initial thought was like maybe obliger or upholder, but then I was like, could lean more towards the rebel side. Right. I don't know. Right. So the reason there's the, this is something that, that that comes up a lot. So so in a way, of course, we're all a little bit of everything because none of us want to be totally controlled, right? React, and so we're like rebels and we don't want to be controlled. None of us want to do something that is is an inefficient, arbitrary waste of our time. So in that way, we're like questioners. All of us would choose to do something for someone else if it was important enough, even if it meant sacrificing something that was important to us. So in that way, we're all like a blazer. So we are all a mix of it. So this is really like the deep core, what's your instinctive reaction? I'm asking you to do something. Is your answer, why should I? Is your answer, you're not the boss of me? Is the answer, when is it due? You know, this is like, where's, where's, this, like, where's this overwhelming kind of instinctive reaction coming? The thing about questioners is that questioners see themselves more in everybody else. And so when people are saying, like, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm like, well, it's a questioner because you're saying, in this circumstance, I would behave this way. In this circumstance, I would behave this way because that's what makes the most sense in that circumstance. But even the idea that I'm acting in the way that makes more sense is a questioner idea. And one of the things, questioners are always saying, like, well, isn't everybody a questioner? Or doesn't everybody want to be a questioner? But they're not. You know, and I think upholders, rebels, and obligers feel their tendency. I know that I am not a questioner or an obliger or a rebel. It's totally clear to me. I think feeling like you're kind of a little bit of everything is an aspect of the questioner tendency. So we do have a question from Facebook. Stephen Jones asked, the four tendencies were a really powerful insight, but are you on the lookout for tendencies that don't fit into the four? Do you have a notebook, mental or otherwise, where you keep track of people who say, I'm sort of this, but sort of that? Well, yeah, we, did, we just talked about that. Um, but in terms of other kinds of tendencies, like sort of outside this framework, and better than before, I go through a ton of things in what I call the strategy of distinctions, which is like, are you a morning person or a night person? Are you a moderator or an abstainer when you're giving up a strong temptation? Are you a simplicity lover or an abundance lover? Are you a marathoner or a sprinter when it comes to work habits? I'm always on the lookout for uh, how people respond differently. And whenever I see somebody saying like, well, here's the right way to do it. This is the way you should do it. You should get up at 7 a.m. and go for a run every day before work. 
you should start your day with the hardest intellectual challenge. Don't start your day with email. I'm like, okay, I think I'm looking for a distinction because it's probably really good advice for some people and not very good for other people because there is no one best way. So I'm always on the hunt for those things, underbuyers and overbuyers, which you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier. You and I are both underbuyers. So I'm always on the hunt for those, and, uh, and, and, and I'm always kind of enchanted by these kind of new vocabulary to describe differences. Some people don't like a label. They say, like, if you define me, you can find me. But I really feel like having a term for something, it's, it's a shorthand to facilitate communication, and also I feel like it, does, it often is a, a spotlight that can illuminate uh, hidden patterns of our behavior. Well, that does it for this episode of Script Chat. A big thanks to Gretchen Rubin and Chip Heath for joining us for the original chat and, of course, for subsequently appearing on our podcast. And don't forget, The Four Tendencies is available right now on Script. If you're interested in discovering your tendency and better learning how to respond to expectations, make sure to visit Script.com where you'll get access to the best books, audiobooks, news, and magazines. As always, new members can read free for 30 days just by signing up. Again, that's scrib.com, S-C-R-I-B-D.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.